Here's an ode to the shelf turd. This year's industry predictions we plan to ignore. A new homebrew setup to take it mobile. This is It's All Beer. Welcome to It's All Beer. It's officially free for all February. If you managed to stay sober all January, congratulations. Now, if you don't wake up in March in Cambodia dripping with blood and scorpion whiskey with a scar where your kidney used to be, then what was even the point of dry January? Don't worry, if you stayed sober for the entire month, that shit will grow back. I'm Jeremy Jones. I'm Tyler Zimmerman. And who drinks scorpion whiskey? It's got to be scorpion tequila if you're in Cambodia. <laughs> I don't think they make it out of agave, do they? Uh, whatever the scorpion eats is what they make it out of. No, they put the scorpion in the... They make the whiskey and they put the scorpion in the whiskey and then you no, drink... Not not the way I do it. <laughs> that's a different... That, that's a whole different process. Yep, just grind them up real small. Use the blood as the shoot, the liquid and there you go. You ferment scorpion blood. And venom. <laughs> uh, are you drinking that now? No, I'm drinking something way better. Uh, the scorpion, the fermented scorpion tastes kind of like milk wine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we've talked about uh, the milk wine. I think we have, but. I think we have too. Because I talked about a milk wine vodka. So, yes, we have. Oh, dear God. Uh, yeah, I am drinking Saison right. DuPont because I saw we finally got the 16 ounce cans of it in the market. Oh, about bloody fucking time. I was going to say, which, if you're a regular listener, you will remember we talked about how they were releasing that like a year ago on this podcast. And uh, the their, well, it, it sounded like uh, their distributor in town who was spectacularly shitting the bed. And I mean, I mean, just full on assholes all over that bed. Um, I think they did decent with wine. They did okay with wine sometimes. If you, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, they got bought by another uh, uh, distributor. So I'm 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 looking forward to 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 uh, uh, some improvement across the board. They did some good. They they had some good import uh, uh, portfolios, including Cezanne Dupont. So I'm hoping those gets uh, they do something well with those. Uh, speaking of new things in town, I got a uh, a can of Alesmith's uh, Party Trick IPA. Uh, Alesmith just is new in town. Oh, did Alesmith finally land? Yes, it finally did. When we finish recording, you'll have to tell me who brought them in. Um, well, it was Scout. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a. I, I feel like I can say that on the podcast. <laughs> no one out, no one outside this market will give a flying fuck. But, <laughs> but for the record, it was Scout distributing that that brought them in. Um, and that's uh, who I figured was gonna bring them in. Uh, West Coast uh, IPA, and it is yeah, it is a it is a nice IPA. Uh, uh, bright, uh, piney, citrusy aroma. Very uh, a very classic West Coast uh, uh, hop profile. Citrus with a touch of mango, uh, pine, a little bit of resin, a little bit balanced towards the malt. I get a little bit of like bready, toasty malt on the back. Very little bitterness. Um, almost a sweet finish. Uh, but nice. No, not too bad. So shall we get into it? Tyler, what do you got for us today? Well, found an article that is basically an ode to the shelf turd. Ah, the uh, shelf turd that 
that uh, uh, that beer I bought oh seven to eight months ago that I thought would be a hit, and I think two people tried it, decided it was eh okay, and that was the end of it. Didn't have a cool enough label. It wasn't what all the people on Beer Advocate said they need to drink, so no one's drinking it anymore. Or it was, or the late, or the label was fine. It just. It was oh, it was oh, oh though that brewery, yeah, th- that brewery was really that brewery is really good. I really like them, but I've had that one. But so the article says, in all its hypelessness, the shelf turd abides, and says the thrill of finding a whale amid commonplace beer and whiskey prevails only because the shelf turd dares to exist. And it got me thinking. I was like, the article really kind of dives in, um, but it made me like almost look back with fondness on some shelf turds I see. Um, we must be thinking to have a different definition of shelf turd. I mean, every once in a while you, you go to a bottle shop, especially out of town. Um, and especially if you're traveling in a, Oh, shall we say a, uh, uh, a, a off the beaten path, a bottle shop in a, in a city that is not known for their craft beer culture. Uh, and you'll find a you'll find a uh, a barrel aged stout from two or three years ago and be a hell of a find. Yep. So they in the article, uh, kind of where we'll start is they did some research to try to see where shelf turd started uh, from the people they talked to uh, because like smooth when describing beer. Was traced back to American magazine ads in the fifties, uh, okay. but they weren't sure where shelf turd came from. The actual they word, figured the, the term shelf turd. Yes, um, and so they started digging in, uh, and through a few search inquiries, a few blog posts, and a stray hashtag in Untapped, date the term to about twenty twelve. Uh, but in right. every case. Shelf turd was used self-evidently, as though it had already been in circulation. One of the people was able to actually trace it back to beer advocate trade boards around 2010-2011, which have since been wiped from the internet, uh, when they made the switch over to the new platform in 2013. But it can be, it's safe to say about 2012, uh, it was kind of that niche term, uh, it was the insider term. And then it took off after 2012. And by 2015, it was named one of the most overused terms by beer nerds ever. It does have a beautiful succinctness about it. I don't think I don't think you need to uh, explain too much if you're going down, if you're going through uh, a, a in context, if you're going through a roll of shelves and someone says, oh, uh, uh, what's that beer like? Oh, that it's a shelf turd. It's yep. a pretty self-evident term. I think you, you don't, if you, any retail experience whatsoever, you kind of go, I get it. <laughs> but uh, this article actually more focuses like beers that were once hype beers that evolved into shelf terms. Uh, and it kind of takes that approach. Um, to start the article, the author actually talks about how the first time he ever drank Goose Island's Bourbon County. Wasn't even of legal drinking age yet. Uh, they found and describes, you know, the tasting experience. Uh, they found it as a rite of passage 
They were young, broke, but found some of the Bourbon County and got a clerk to sell it to them. What they did not know was Goose Island had just been bought by AB InBev, and they have increased their distribution nationally. So they thought they struck gold. The clerk came from the back with the last bottle, and you could probably figure out it was a shelf turd. Still a great and delicious beer, but because of the national availability, it lost its luster as a whale. Um, and they talk about how, you know, in 2012, it was kind of the, like, perfect storm for this. Craft beer entered a boom. Um, and cult favorites that you could only get by camping out at the brewery or knowing someone who lived in that area that you'd have to trade for or ship for. Um, and you're camping out the night before. All of a sudden had distribution channels, whether through being acquired by a national brewery or just maturing as a brewery and starting to increase production. Uh, it basically took the hype and turned it into hypelessness. And all of a sudden that bottle that sold out last year in a flash bottle shopper bar gets two cases of it instead of the one case. And it sits around for six months. Uh, I've the, It's been interesting watching the evolution of Bourbon County because, so I don't think we got it in Idaho until it became nationally uh, distributed. Um, and yeah, um, when I, and that would be about 2014 when I moved back, uh, got a job at a bottle shop and those first years after that, um, not only were, were they still highly sought after, um, that was when, uh, Goose Island would send some, uh, AB InBev goons around to look mm -hmm. down the list. Like, uh, how much, uh, I don't see you've bought a lot of AB InBev to which you go, no, look at what we do. It's the opposite of what AB InBev does. It's good beer. Uh, <laughs> uh, which didn't ing ingratiate uh, themselves to us. Um, or vice versa, I should say. Uh, so we'd always be lucky to get one at which point in time, you know, they, they would all be allocated away. Uh, and then at some point in time, uh, I went to, uh, I, I went to, uh, the, the AB InBev people just kind of disappeared and I could have as much as I want. Mm-hmm. Um, in the article, they point to Goose Island. They also point to Fundamental Observation. A renowned imperial stout from Bottle Logic out of Southern California, and they go. They make so much of it now, so that that would be in that pocket of something that's desired, something that people would still be excited to drink. But it's so widely available that it no longer has any trade value, and basically transitioned from whale down to shelf turd. Now whale. What we're what, now now shelf turd. I feel is a pretty is a pretty um uh like I said self-explanatory term, um but while we're defining terms, we might want to define whale because that one's perfect. That one's less I feel self-evident. Yep. So it's it's that beer or the bottle of whiskey that you're going after. It is your white whale. It is your Moby Dick to your Captain Ahab. Uh, you are doing everything you can to try to find it and catch it. Um, a good example is a bottle of 23. The article actually mentions a bottle of 23 year old Pappy Van Winkle. It's considered a whale in a lot of bourbon communities. Uh, it's 
a fucking huge financial investment to get it, something most drinkers today won't have in their possession. So it concentrates that sweetness and longing when they finally do achieve it. It makes it worth it. But the weird psychological quirk that happens is when one whale is captured, the sense of longing doesn't disappear. Uh, It gets displaced and transferred to the next whale that you got to start chasing. You're, you're just constantly chasing that high of grabbing it and say, doing the big swinging dick of, I got this and you didn't it, it's, say it's, 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 it's not all that uh, unusual. It's, it's human psychology at its finest. <laughs> it's the basis of addiction. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. why we do anything really. When you get right down to it. Um, but what actually, like, this article kind of inspired me. And the first brewery I thought of that's specifically tied to the Boise Treasure Valley market uh, that now is seen as a shelf turd, can you guess which one I thought of? That's the a, a, a beer, uh, beer that's, uh, that's distributed you used here? to fly... Yep, used to fly off the shelf anytime it would come to town. Uh, I could, super sought after, and I could, now it is a shelf turd. You will find it anywhere. I can think of a few of them, um, but off the top of my head, um, Fremont? Yep, that is who I thought of immediately because I remember when B-Bomb and Dark Star first started coming in the barrel age, and then we got the Ancient Ones, and then everyone's losing their shit over Brew 3000 and rusty nail and then when they weren't allowed to bring rusty nail because a brewery already had that name and everyone's cro- just losing it, 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 their shit it was, it was crooked fence they're dead now we can say crooked fence uh, yeah. <laughs> i i mean for some reason i'm okay speaking ill of the dead <laughs> but and, well, the, and the thing was they had a beer uh there was their amber ale it was called the rusty nail and they had sort of reached an agreement with fremont saying hey you stay out of your backyard we stay out of ours cool cool okay um but uh one one rusty nail was epic and the other one was toilet water <laughs> well uh so then rusty nail finally came and that's around the time i feel Fremont transitioned to a shelter. They had upped their production enough and started distributing enough of it that every all these bottle shops and grocery stores were picking it up. They could buy as much as they wanted. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, I can get that now. I don't want it. Well, and I, I mean, a few things happened at the same time. Number one, um, yeah, their distribution channel opened up. Tavor happened, and Tavor put... A just a uh, I think cured a lot of that uh, uh, that inset that the people uh, um, it cured a lot of beer trading and thus people uh, uh, buying up a whole lot of stuff thus creating demand. Um, what you mm-hmm. what you don't find as much as people uh, that will go from bottle shop to bottle shop to bottle shop buying the limit until they get a couple cases. And then trading that for other stuff. Uh, yeah. Also, I feel one thing Fremont did, and I, I'm not Fremont, so I don't know what sparked this, whether it was a good decision or not. They started then charging 
a premium, a premium, premium That's... fucking price for that beer and jumped the price $10 in retail basically overnight for the same beer that they're still sending the same amount of that was already too much for the market they're sending. And then it really just hit the brakes and slowed it down. I was just about to say, and also they they uh, upped the price a lot, and all of a sudden people who were still who were still eager to get it were like, look at the price. Holy shit, forty bucks! Now instead of three bottles, I'm buying one. Yeah, it went from a fifteen dollar bomber to what a twenty six, twenty seven dollar bomber, upper of thirty. Fuck that. And they had always had like their brew three thousand or like the real limited one offs, but I were still have we still that have, higher price point. We still have one bottle of the brew six thousand. That I thought yeah. again, you're sitting there going, How is that? I still look at that bottle going, How do we still have that bottle? Because what? Fifty five dollars? Not quite that much, but it's like but it's thir- it's in the thirties. Yeah. Hard to choke down when a gallon of gas is $4. And then Anchorage came into town with 350 milliliter uh, Imperial Stouts for 70 And all of a sudden, that $30 bottle, that $30 bottle uh, uh, 750 looks fr- pretty fucking good. <laughs> yeah, but they know that $30 750 will still be there. But that 350 is flying off the shelf, and they only got a couple cases in market. So you got to get that so you don't miss out on what it's going to taste like. And what if that other guy on that beer group that you're in gets one and says it's the best beer ever, and you didn't try it, and it's all gone, and now you're going to be missing out? Ah, FOMO. <laughs> Marketing, bitch. <laughs> but this article, the main reason I wanted to bring it up was I kind of want to start a movement to save the shelf turds now. How does one shave, save the shelf turds? I mean, do you buy them? Because if you buy them, they, they they cease their shelf turd status. Yeah, I, I think that's what you have to do or start trying to get hype back on the, these good quality, like, barrel-aged beers that are now sitting on the shelf because they're not the hype beers right now. Well, from from the perspective of someone who, uh, who 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 does manage a bottle shop, when it comes to your imperial stouts, barrel aged stuff, I really don't care all that much if it's not moving. You know, your twelve, your your sixteen ounce, twelve ounce IPAs, uh, if if they come in, they don't move. Fuck them, they're out. I need that space for something else. That that door has got to turn, and it's got to turn all the time. Uh, the barrel aged stout, I'm, you know what, that, that bottle of Fremont 6,000, unlike the last can of some, uh, some hazy IPA that's been, that's approaching its six month, uh, it's, it's six month anniversary at the shop. I'm never going to discount that Fremont 6,000. Why? Because it's only a matter of time, and it might be tomorrow, it might be three months from now, it might be a fucking year from now. But someday, somebody will come in, be looking through the shelf, stop and go, oh my god, you still have that! And I- mm-hmm. Someone who's looking to do a vertical that, that ties into that vertical, or just for shits and gigs, or is down at the big smoke and fucking bought a scratcher at 150 bucks and is like, 
Fuck yeah, I'm riding high. I've been eyeing that bottle. I'm gonna go buy it. I'm not worried about that bottle. Uh, it it can it can sit there for as long as it need to. I mean, it will sell someday. It will sell. Maybe to me, I, there may come a day where like, fuck it, I'm gonna drink the the, the three year old brew six thousand. <laughs> fuck it. Maybe me and you should just split that bottle tomorrow. <laughs> See, and that's how, and that's how a shelf turd gets eliminated. Well, also, I really just, I'm like, I'd rather see the hype transition back to these like big barrel aged beers than the gimmicky hazy IPAs or slushy sours. So if I can destroy slushy sours with barrel aged beers, I will lead that charge. But those are, but those are their own special type of shelf turd. I mean, they they, they have their own shelf turd rotation. They're explosive. Yeah. <laughs> That's a di- that's a shelf diarrhea is what that is. <laughs> uh, well, Jeremy, what do you what do we got next? Fuck your craft beer predictions news now. Uh, Tis the Woo-hoo! season when a lot of beer writers struggling for any idea uh, look at the calendar and decide to write the obligatory predictions for the craft beer market for the year twenty twenty three or whatever fucking year we're in. We've done them. We've talked about them in the past. Um, I found a few this year, but none of them seem to have much of anything new. Um, a lot of, hey, have you seen these new N.A. beers? They're all the rage. Yeah, thanks for the insight. Um, you know, spring of 2021 called. It, it's got your headline back. Uh, Listen to this podcast and you'll know that's old news. <laughs> that's us. We are at the forefront of all this shit. Uh, I like the meaty part of the bell curve. <laughs> I mean, Ephesus on the meaty. Hell yeah, big boy nation! <laughs> I found this article from the Rolling Stone, however, by Kevin McGee, uh, and I enjoyed it quite a lot. Why uh, do they even have, like, a semblance of authority to discuss beer? They don't. Um, in fact, I'm going to correct a few of the... Uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to add my own uh, asides to this article. I just like... I just enjoyed the approach. Um, uh... Uh, it is the 2023 craft beer predictions we can all comfortably ignore. Uh, so if you're digging your way through the breathless predictions of 2023, here are a few that are either bullshit, obvious to anyone who's been paying at least amount of attention, or just goddamn stupid. Number one, any prediction that mentions that 2023 will be the year of the logger. I've enjoyed. They say the- that every year. <laughs> exactly, you got it. I I I don't remember ex- the exact moment when Logger roared back into the craft beer scene with an undeniable speed. I think it was roughly around the time that Stone released a beer called "Who You Callin' Wussy." Yep, uh, but also Brian Roth from Good Beer Hunting was tweeting out uh, right around this new year when the. Most recent, when the IRI data basically got released for the full, the last quarter of the year, and was like, so, some takeaways from 2022. Craft logger, still not a growing thing. Um, and I'm going to bet, based on the trends, 2023, it's still not going to be. <laughs> I mean... But it, and yet it has come back, and it's been coming back for a while. The number of breweries producing a nice, light, drinkable beer has gone up, um, and 
you know it'll do well in tap rooms just no like dollar numbers through grocery stores exactly like ipa there's a group of that just reflexively orders the lightest thing on the menu and if you give them anything that doesn't resemble a resemble a urine sample from an ideally hydrated individual you're treated to slack jawed incredulity um Unless you're, unless you can get away with a very specialized menu, you need to have a light lager. You need to have five IPAs. Make peace with this now. Um, but like you said, uh, the reason this keeps coming up every year, and this prediction is made, loggers roll out of taps. And when you look at you know actual scan d- data, you see little to no change. And the reason for that, like you said, the volume pushed by craft breweries is so low that if even if all of them started producing light lager, which is more or less exactly what happened. Uh, it's not enough to make a sizable blip on the stats from that year. So everyone decides, well, next year, next year it's going to happen. Or also because if I'm standing in a grocery store and it's $20 for a fucking 30 rack of Miller Lite and it's $18 for a 12 pack of a craft lager, 99% of the people are grabbing Miller Lite. Well, and and there was one other thing I thought of uh, that I that wasn't in the article. I mean, you also got to remember that a lot of breweries didn't have light loggers um, when they started up, and it's not because customers didn't want them; it's because that the I guess you could say the technology really didn't exist in, uh, in that scale to make them. You know, ask- or you you don't have the tank space as a starting up brewery to have a beer tie up a tank for six to eight weeks and when a lot of these young breweries started the, it was like the craft beer revolution was like anti-logger anti-logger oh, and, and by the way you just it, to make a logger you also have to have a pretty high degree of temperature control which didn't exist in you know the earliest breweries um it was the reason that your best sell if you if you went to the early 2000s to the 2000 you know to the to the teens and ask any brewery what their best-selling beer was it was most likely to be their blonde ale their wheat beer their golden ale or some other analog to a lager uh that they do with ale yeast um and it was to appease the people who walk into their walk into their tap room and look bleary-eyed at their menu going uh i i i drink budweiser here drink this what's the closest to bud light (laughs) yeah yeah you you they are a small but dying breed, but they still exist. Um, my point was is that people's taste didn't really change. The ability to meet the but the ability to meet the taste of the customer did, uh, and so and so there goes your blip as uh, uh, blip as well. I mean, you didn't people didn't suddenly decide that loggers were good. They just were able to fill the fill the uh, uh, fill the gap that was already there. Um, yeah, been, been going for a while. While uh, uh, it seems like uh, uh, we've hit about the 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 saturation point that lager is going to have in craft brewery, still the second highest category in the uh, in in uh, of of all of them. But there shall be no year of the lager. We're in it. Thanks, thanks for coming. May I take your coat? This is the best it's going to get. <laughs> the second, any prediction that mentions hard Mountain Dew. Uh, the quote from the article, uh, quote, Hard Mountain Dew, actually at this point, it's probably a was, uh, a project that some marketing folks came up with likely on a dare. The initial load in sold through because people wanted to see the train wreck. 
The first part, although humorous, I don't think is accurate. Uh, the, the idea that this was created on a dare, y you don't start a whole distribution company on a goof. Even if you're Pepsi. No. I think somebody honestly thought this was going to be the next big thing. And that executive has been shit-canned in, dis in disgrace, which is to say he got a gigantic bonus, a golden parachute, and left to get an even higher-paying job at another company. All corporate executives are basically leaf blowers with the intelligence of a lemur with fetal alcohol syndrome that get a promotion and a pay raise every time they cock something up. Thus, they make a world the world a worse place and make more money more money doing it than you or everyone you know will ever make they should be it should be legal to hunt them for sport but i digress <laughs> it didn't do any worse than bud light next but but anheuser-busch is still dumping money into that shithole are they really is bud light yeah. Next still a thing <laughs> yes i think they're doing another super bowl commercial even <laughs> though like it is the worst performing brand of all of their brands. And I'm like, how have you not scrapped this yet? It is garbage. It is a shelf turd to end all shelf turds. <laughs> and not because it's good. It's just terrible. Um, uh, the bit about, but the bit about the uh, hard mountain zoo's only value is an especially warm dumpster file to curl up next to uh, appears. That appears to be completely right. Um, I think I think that assessment was absolutely correct. People <laughs> looked at that and said, Hard Mountain Dew, that's stupid. Yeah, I'll buy one. <laughs> yep. Um, the And anybody uh, anybody trying to see the rosy picture behind this boondoggle, doggle, they're either stupid or being paid by Pepsi. Maybe both. Uh, but yes, if you're, if you're predicting that this year uh, uh, Hard Mountain Dew will come roaring back, I think you could. I think you've forfeited any uh, any uh, luster of knowing what you're talking about. Third, any prediction that hard seltzer is dying, like the perpetual year of the lager. We've been dis doing this story for I don't know how many years has it been, Tyler? Fuck, I don't know. A long time. I mean, when we did, we started this podcast just. I mean, about the peak of hard seltzer. Uh, and then pretty much the next, the, the first month when it didn't, uh, I think the first month it didn't still break triple digit uh, 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 growth numbers. Everybody's like, this is the end? Is hard seltzer going away? Uh, no. Uh, it's not dying. It's maturing. Uh, you're not going to see triple digit growth you saw back in 2017 because there's not that many people. Uh, at this point, to mm -hmm. perpetuate 150% growth uh, that we were seeing in its heyday, not only would every human have to be swilling flavorless booze water, but a decent portion would have to be actively killing themselves doing so. You'd be wandering the streets trying to avoid seltzer junkies that running up to you, hey man, hey man, you got any Palermo? I mean, just one man, I swear I'll hit you back. Fuck, I'll even take a lemon. Bro, come back. I'll suck your dick for a blood orange. <laughs> what happened? I'll suck your dick for a blood orange. You'll be the title. <laughs> what happened was hard seltzer hit a natural saturation point. They found that people most amenable to the idea of hard seltzer, they developed a customer base. Uh, you're seeing a small drop as people look for the next best thing or realize they always preferred something else. And, you know, or some of those that realize you get the same thing for the price of a handle of vodka and a case of LaCroix. But, you know, that's if you're going fancy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I feel like you wanted to say something, but you got derailed on. <laughs> no, I I was gonna say, or people realize they can buy vodka and Lacroix and do the same thing themselves, and then you you said it, and I was like, damn it. Um, you don't even need Lacroix. I mean, get the twenty five cent Albertsons brand. <laughs> um, my point is, it's not going away. The 2022 sales of Seltzer were $6.3 billion, of which 45% were White Claw. That's up from $4.9 billion in 2021. Damn. Not going away. It will probably never go away completely. As I've stated before, I believe that this booze will, booze will be weirdly defined a certain age group. It will be the equivalent of Bartles and James that's still tucked away in your grocery bar cooler. Um... Yeah, and you you know, and you look at that, and you go, "Does anyone ever drink that?" And behind you, there's an old lady going, "Not unless you move your ass, Sunny Jim." Now stand aside, Grandma got to get off her tits. Unless you want to come home <laughs> with me and throw Mother Hubbard a bone. <laughs> Ain't no laws. Uh, the last one. Any prediction that mentions the recession? Uh, here, McGee is uh, uh, skeptical that a recession will have any effect on the beer world, and while there's some truth of that. Uh, the fact that beer has proven to be remarkably recession-proof in the past years. Um, and in fact, craft beer during the last recession, uh, uh, it represented a kind of affordable luxury. Um, in that sense, uh, p- people that got hard up on funds that couldn't scrape together their weekly night out maybe could buy a few bottles of something really nice, gather at home and sample a, a, you know, a few IPAs and discuss, among other things, how they should definitely hunt rich bastards that caused all this. Make a drinking game out of it. Shoot and miss, take a drink. Uh, you know, one of your, the one you're hunting escapes in his helicopter, take two drinks. Aim for a billionaire, but accidentally hit one of his tax lawyers, finish your drink. Kill a billionaire, social, everyone finishes their drink. Eat the rich. That's all I'm saying. Um, but that was the last recession. <laughs> and this is maybe the renewed recession. I don't know. They're still trying to define what the fuck a recession is. Um, we're going to see some fallout. I do think we're going to see fewer breweries opening this year. I wouldn't be at all shocked to see more close. Uh, this business has been getting, has, is getting harder and it's been doing so for a while. And that's the whole, I think that's one of the biggest things we're seeing uh, in all of these is, yeah, none of this is new. This has all been happening for a long time. Um, I was going to say, also, I think craft breweries are going to struggle more uh, with this economic time versus the last recession because of the fact a lot of breweries have been moving to premiumization uh, and selling their beer for a higher price per pack than they were before uh, because that's where you're actually seeing a lot of the growth in the scan data. It's not in volume. The volume's remaining relatively consistent or with a slight growth growth or decline, either way. Uh, but you're seeing the growth for beer and craft beer is we're raising our price and selling the same amount of beer. So, holy shit, look at all this extra scam dollars we're seeing. Beer's growing. No, I mean, we're just charging more for the same swill. Well, in the, uh, but in, the, in a sense, that is still making more money. You know, it's not moving as much product. Uh, I think what to me what I think this industry uh, what what the biggest change, um, you know, this recession to the last the last recession, the beer industry was still very very new, right? We're talking mm-hmm. two thousand eight to two thousand twelve. We were I mean we, we were just after uh, 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 AB InBev got into the game. Uh, craft beer was still new and sexy. 
Uh, it's, 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 it's reaching middle age right now. Uh, craft, I always gotta remember, craft beer is as old as me, and I'm 41. I, you old fuck. Uh, <laughs> back, b- back in 2008, I was in my 20s. I was young, I was hip, I was sexy. Uh, uh, listen. I was in high school. Let's, let's not, let's not get, let's not get into it. Um, but the, the. But craft beer is in its middle age now, and uh, I, I think I, I think you're going to see a couple of things. There's been a lot of lot of breweries across the board that are producing mediocre product, mm-hmm. and and with the higher price per six pack now of a mediocre product, that's where I think craft breweries are going to feel it. Is the breweries that are selling their beer for more than they should be are going to struggle. The breweries that are still a good product for a reasonable price will see a slight bump, I think. Absolutely. And the other thing I think was it's 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 hard to uh, uh, to make tangible, but um, what you're also going to run into is people who have been doing this for uh, for years, maybe decades who are just ready to throw in the towel. Uh, you were less likely to see that in 2008 to 2012. Uh, the industry was still very new. If you owned a brewery, you were likely, not only were you likely fully invested, uh, it was a passion project project. Uh, it was easy to find workers because it was a passion project because working in this industry had that mystique and it had that, uh, had that, uh, uh, that idealism, um, a lot of and if you went under, they took your house. <laughs> and if you went under, they took your house. Um, I feel like uh, at this point in time, the 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 fuel that the industry, the, the passion that this industry was largely running on at the time, it's all but over. Um, trying to find, you're 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 going to find people who want to work in this industry at any given time, but uh, burnout I feel is is really high right now, and a lot of people are just ready ready to kind of say, oh fuck it. Not everybody. There's, you know, they're uh, say it's kind of the same thing. If you're producing quality product for a good price, um, you're gonna be able to hang in there. If you're phoning it in, I think the I, I think you're done. Yeah, the writing is on the wall. So uh, there you go. Uh, you can you can safely ignore everything uh, that we've just said in the last oh twenty minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler, what's perfect? Next? So just skip ahead. Uh, well. <laughs> Speaking of seltzers, we're going to get to the founding father of the FMB category, Four Loco. Um, <laughs> you were so excited when you heard me told me about this. It was like, I just, I, I at, at, at your, at your craft, you're a craft beer nerd, but at your heart, you are a swills uh, chugging son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, Hundred percent. I'm a degenerate at heart, and when I saw this article, it it was actually in a newsletter I subscribed to about the consumer package industry, and they like tagged this article in it, and I was like, "Oh, I gotta read this," and it kind of took me down a little memory lane trip because like. 2008 is when Four Loco really kind of came onto the scene. I was a junior in high school, or a sophomore or junior in high school. So it was right during the high school parties. It was around for my 
college parties of like freshman year uh, before it got revamped. All the caffeine got taken out and it lost its luster. <laughs> it became, I mean, it wasn't deadly anymore. What's the fucking point? <laughs> exactly. So the article goes, I mean, after I... 15 years, the blackout in a can remains a garnish. <laughs> A garnish reminder of the fine line between pleasure and harm. Uh. <laughs> I mean, listen, if you're going to drink Four loco, just do Coke and whiskey like an adult, for God's sakes. Dude, I can't afford a Coke problem. <laughs> I work in craft beer. Uh, uh, <laughs> the author starts off describing, you know, first time really having Four loco, and goes, the last thing I remember was the sunset. It was a Wednesday <laughs> evening in 2010. Uh, uh, and they were drinking a purple uh, Four Loco. And, and the best part was Four Loco, no one called them by the names. You called them by the color like Gatorade. <laughs> nothing, nothing good has ever happened to anybody drinking purple booze. I'm just going to say that. If you're drinking purple booze, all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> yeah. It's going to come out both ends, by the way. Uh, it goes, uh, the sun setting over the skyline, then nothing. I was told later we ate pizza. I called my partner that I ran somewhere, uh, don't know where, uh, and I hadn't even finished my can. Oh, wait, there was one more memory. This felt weirder, wilder, and darker than being just normally drunk. <laughs> to quote Ralph Wiggum, I'm in danger. <laughs> uh, but, so, little backstory on Four Loco for any of you toddlers listening to us. Um, the parent company Fusion Projects was founded in 2005 by Ohio State University students Chris Hunter, Jason Freeman, and Jeff Wright. Uh, who noticed popularity of Red Bull and vodka and thought to combine the Speedball Light into a single product. Uh, sure. Also, also uh, cocaine and vodka. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in 2008, they began packaging the drink. It is a combination of alcohol, sugar, caffeine, guarana, and taurine uh, in a camo-printed 24-ounce tall boy, bright as a poison frog. Uh it doubled the drink's alcohol content from 6 to 12% ABV. Uh, and that's when people say Four loco. That is what they remember. I remember, like, my senior year of college, a couple pledges were like, oh, we're drinking Four Locos. I was like, that shit's not Four loco." I was like, back in my day, it was like the equivalent to six cup of coffee and, like, four beers in one can. Man the fuck up. Uh <laughs> And they're like, okay, old man. And I was like, pussies. Uh, <laughs> you did say back in my day. You you do realize that that is, you might as well just grab a cane the minute you say back in my day. <laughs> yeah. But, so it gained national distribution in 2008. Um, that same year, physicians started petitioning the FDA to regulate energy drinks. Um, and in 2009, attorney generals from 25 states succeeded in pressuring Miller Coors to remove caffeine 
from its four loco predecessor, Sparks, which I remember that I remember pretty Sparks. vividly. Uh, and then by 2010, my freshman year of college, uh, stories were hitting the news about students being hospitalized for high blood pressure and alcohol poisoning after drinking four locos. A politician, Chuck Schumer, called for bans. Uh, Brooklyn Assemblyman Felix Ortiz, in an attempt to prove how dangerous this was, drank as much four loco as he could in an <laughs> hour on... <laughs> on New York's NBC station with a doctor. <laughs> he did not. Like, oh, yes. With a doctor measuring his vital signs, his blood pressure shot through the roof, and eventually he vomited off screen. He then urged New York to ban the beverage. Are you, sh- are you, are you sh- 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 should, 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 HB legal, legal. The best part. He didn't realize when he did this story that it contained alcohol. Oh, for fuck's sakes. He thought it was an energy drink? Yeah. Oh, uh, that, was, that, that was probably an unpleasant uh, morning. <laughs> so, but it was a weird, like, paradigm shift when that happened. Instead of making people scared of it, it enticed a number of college students uh, no basically shit. They, <laughs> they said, this is, well, uh, you're telling me, you're telling me that a, that a uptight white guy going on television telling kids, uh, you shouldn't drink this. This could be dangerous. Did not have a bunch of kids going, uh-huh. We will totally believe that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a cocktail expert and author, John DeBerry said, it was always like, Hey, did you hear about this thing? New York city's banning. Hey, did you hear about the kid who died drinking for a loco? We should try it. Like, we got to see what it's about. Um, yeah. And, I mean, for a loco was genius. They didn't market. Um, they just let the word of mouth take off and run. Um, and they timed it at the right time when social media was starting to take off and you had to manually upload most of your photos from your digital camera. And so you see all these four loco pictures in the camera in the photos people were uploading uh in everyone's hands i remember walking into so many parties in college and you'd see this little 90 pound white girl being like oh i'm late i need to catch up i'm gonna shotgun this and you're like you're going to the hospital (laughs) and keep moving through the party and it was just a normal occurrence remember i watched one girl she's like i can beer bong four of those and everyone's like, no, you can't, and we're not going to try to help you because we don't want to deal with you vomiting and taking you to the hospital. <laughs> uh, but it was like everyone's like dick-measuring contest who could drink those the fastest, and you would just watch people get absolutely obliterated. Uh, well, and as, the somebody, article I- as somebody who's experimented with Coke and booze before, because I'm a goddamn adult, um, the problem with... It's a great time. It's the a problem great with time. stimulants and booze is that stimulants tend to cancel out, not the, doesn't cancel out the booze, but it cancels out your awareness of the booze. Like, 
yeah. you, you that 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 nice the that nice heavy depressive like you know that that you that, take an upper and a downer and you remain the same. <laughs> well, except for uh, I think I don't remember what com- uh, 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 I don't remember what comedian but he was talking about. Uh, uh, he was talking about being uh, getting invited to a gay club and then I, and then and off uh, uh, offered a uh, energy drink with alcohol in it, and he looked around and said, "Listen." Um, this, I don't think this is where I, a place where I want Lord hit inhibitions and an energy to try something new. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, in the article, they also talk about how in the restaurant industry, there was a glamorization of what used to be substratum and that was happening around the same time. And so you'd see the rise of the brash bro food Culture like Epic Mealtime, which endorsed Four, Four Loco. Of course, David Chang, David Chang, and Thomas Keller, uh, some renowned chefs, declared their love for fast food. Restaurateur Eddie Hang specifically embraced Four Loco, attempting to throw an all-you-can-drink Four Loco party after the New York State Liquor Authority announced it was considering banning the drink. And he said, "Now I got to figure out how to give a." people enough for locos so they can get their blackout uh, <laughs> and told the daily news people like to blackout um people it was do. in the midst of a recession so people were trying to get fucked up as cheap as they could as quick as they could and for loco was the perfect combination and it really kind of reminds you you know, it wasn't trying to be like, we're the best tasting drink. It was, here's a quick, easy, efficient way to get completely blacked out for about $5. Uh, and it... As Terry Pratchett would it put reminds it. You, it reminds you why we drink alcohol at the end of the day is to numb ourselves or to get fucked up. See, but the problem with four... Look, I mean... Uh, I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. The problem with Four Loco is not the is not the high alcohol content. I sort of understand why you why the the uh, the attraction of a sugar booze that's twelve fucking percent, uh, you know, because you can shot because the kids can shotgun it. Let's let's be honest. It's the the d- double shot of energy in there that is <laughs> that. That, it, that's the part that he makes you go, oh, okay, so that's basically a meth hit. Yeah. I mean, Four Loco was the f- real, like, first successful, like, viral FMB. It was that flavored malt beverage that was high in alcohol, but not a 40 malt liquor. Um, and it was similar marketed with the colorful cans like hard seltzers are now today, it was really the reason hard seltzer was able to become what it was because Four Loco <laughs> wrote the playbook and paved the path. <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I, I want, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm gonna, I, I question, I question the validity of that. I, but that should be your, that, that ought to be your graduate dissertation right there. How Four Loco Proof. paved the way. <laughs> 
You can't prove a negative, Tyler. You, I, I want to. Uh, your, your mission, if you choose to accept it, that's your graduate thesis right now. Is four loco pave the way for uh, for hard seltzer? I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying I'm going to demand more evidence for this. Well, like I said, four loco was basically word of mouth marketing through social media. What did White Claw do? They leaned in to being that cool kids club, uh, having social media influencers posting about their stuff. Uh, so you're seeing people drink, ain't no laws drinking the claws in the fun little Facebook videos. But that's uh, nothing. People that's, always... that's nothing that's unique to uh, uh, Four Locos. That was just, that's just what you did if you were a brand in the teens up to, into the into where we are now. Yes, but no other alcohol company has r really successfully ran that. Because there's that fine line where you've got to try to get it without advertising to minors. Now, if the minors are drinking it themselves and sharing photos of them on their Facebook feed with that can in their hand, you can play ignorance and say, the store shouldn't have sold it to them. And so White Claw really did run the Four Loco playbook. It's only cans. It was predominantly in grocery and convenience. It was about, something for the college-age student. But you're talking about, I mean, I mean, in both cases, first of all, you're talking about what I refer to as sugar booze, that is, let's face it, uh, uh, more attractive to uh, uh, to well fucking kids because kids like candy and this is booze candy. This is candy booze, uh, and and saying hey kids, you want some candy is what people do in windowless vans. I'd argue that you have no other choice but to run that playbook. True, and I, Although, I, I don't mean, think I, I guess I mean White Claw kind of had it both ways because White Claw, uh, I mean. It would have been a it would have been a hard you would have been a hard thing to try to market that on television market for a local on television you could have but you probably would have raised some eyebrows. Uh, White Claw marketed traditionally as well as um, as through social media I think quite effectively. But White Claw never started those fucking TV ads until it had already taken off. And you had that summer where every fucking Albertsons was out of White Claw. I do remember and that then summer. They, I and, a... and those girls would come up to you and be like, do you have any White Claw? And you're like, no, I have Truly. And they're like, oh. I made a lot of very, uh, very pretty girls. Very sad that summer. So they had already successfully marketed the company. And now they, once they had had that summer, had that full year of really just viral growth, then yes, they started doing the traditional methods to try to broaden that alcohol or that consumer base. Where Four Loco never got that chance because the regulators were knocking on the fucking door at that point. <laughs> DEA was kicking that bitch in. Uh, so, so basically, what you're saying is like is 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 uh, uh, is is. Uh, 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 Four loco is to White Claw what like heroin is to oxycodone. <laughs> yes, Four loco is the Charlie Papazian of hard seltzers. 
versus the what of hard Charlie Papazian of hard seltzers. Oh, okay. The the uh, the OG. Yes, oh, I, it is the OG. Saw... It is who everyone looked to to figure out how to be successful. Okay, I I still I, I still question that. Uh, I I look forward to reading your book. <laughs> I'm gonna write a book now. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, what do we got next? Have homebrew will travel news now. Um, Tyler, you, well, used to be a homebrewer. At least you made some excellent excellent, uh, uh, equipment cleaning solution back in the day. Uh, Fuck you. (laughs) Have you? (laughs) At least I always made sure my beer draft lines were tight and didn't lose a full keg of Vienna lager. (laughs) It happened once. And it wasn't that the lines weren't tight. It was that uh, 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 a faucet leaked. Uh, But how... Even worse. Have you ever been on vacation, looked around and said to yourself, what would what would this make this experience even more perfect? Oh yeah, to make my own beer right here. No. Okay. Well, this has been it's all been, okay. Um <laughs> in, in case you unlike Tyler are so addicted to your hobby, the idea of leaving your homebrew equipment is worse than leaving your pets for a whole week. Or if you just want to add something weird to your trip, uh, Adrian Fabra of Craft Beer and Brewing has just the setup for you. Uh, he regularly traveled to New York City and stayed with the family of a friend and wanted a creative way to thank his hosts for their hospitality. And the process, he started wondering if it'd be possible to basically make a travel-sized brew kit. Um, he thought about it, and he decided he wanted to do it, and these were the the constraints the uh, uh what he need, what what you would need in order to uh to be able to make a beer kind of wherever you went he figured that any brew should be brewed fermented and consumed within seven days um because vacation be, because vacations rarely last more than the week and so the fuck are you pitching champagne yeast <laughs> any equipment should be should be able to fit into one's luggage. Ideally, it shouldn't fill more than say one third of your suitcase. Um, and he thought uh, it would be a good idea to exclude any method that require that would require boiling with uh, uh, require boiling the wort. Um, stoves and kettles are not always available. Um, this should be a method that you could get done in most hotel rooms. Now, at its very simplest, you could get some water ideally bottled, add sugar, add yeast, and essentially make a hard seltzer. But until the jury comes back from the Constellation Modelo case, let's just assume that seltzer isn't beer for right now, okay? Okay. (laughs) The only thing I can think of is basically use a coffee pot with some specialty grain in the filter to basically brew in a bag that bitch, uh, and use the hotel room coffee pot to make beer. I mean, that's an option. We, he, gets, he gets a little bit more uh, uh, advanced than that. But, I mean, taking it one step further. So there's the most basic. You got sugar. You got yeast. You got water. You can make a hard seltzer. But you could also do this with liquid malt extract. Basically pre-made barley sugar. Instant beer. Just add water and yeast. Using a, using a liter uh, glass bottle, this will be your fermenter, so write that down. Um, you add the malt extract, add yeast, ferment, and you've got, well, you've got yeast starter, actually. You've got what I've got over there, <laughs> making a lager yeast starter. Um, but it's beer, but we can do better. Um, 
let's say you have access to a microwave or that little coffee pot in your hotel room. Usually heating water within, is in the, within the realm of possibility, in which case um, a small amount of specialty malt, say crystal, chocolate, roasted barley, a small amount of hops, he suggests about one quart or one ounce per quart. You basically heat the water to 170 to 180 degrees and make a tea out of your uh, specialty malt and hops. Mix this with malt extract and you've got a, something close to beer. And then he also introduces the, the sous vide method. Um, are you familiar with this type of cooking? Yes. Okay, it's I, you cook it at a very low in a vacuum sealed pack. It's cooking about, it's basically slow cooking inside a vacuum sealed pack in a tub of water. And it really tenderizes the meat. Uh, and you can cook it to basically where you then just sear the sides. It's done. You get like the perfect steak every time. Uh, I had, I was not really familiar with this until, uh, until I read this article. So, uh, but of course, uh, as, 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 as a meat fan, you would know all about this. Um, this is a body built by me, <laughs> <laughs> but you could, you could also use, uh, a sous vide heater, a hotel sink and a few Ziploc bags. And you've got what amounts to a little mash tun. Um, he postulates that it may even be possible to do an all grain mash or even a step mash using a sous vide he heater in a sink, but calm down there, Louis Pasteur. You're already doing this on the fly. Let's not go crazy. This does limit your hopping rates. A hop tea is not going to extract the same bittering compounds that you get from a boil. It should be noted that a lot of, if not most hazy IPAs, however, rely exclusively on late hop additions, which is to say not boiled at all with the wort. So heated to 180 degrees with your wort and dry hopped, you could make a passable hazy IPA. Not a great one, passable. Um, so there's your malt, your hops. What about your yeast? Um, dry is best for obvious reasons. You need something quick fermenting. Uh, Safael 05, 04 comes to mind, as well as Belle Cezanne, but let's cut to the chase. If you're making something quick... Wallowman's EC 1180. Fuck no, not anymore. You're, you're talking... Get get off the uh, get off the stage, old man. There's a new there's a new uh, 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 rapid brew uh, uh, yeast in town. We've talked about it. Bullshit. Kvake. Ve oh, vake. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Vos Kvake uh, from Lalamund would be my bullshit. I'm I'm calling the EC eleven eighteen can ferment faster, higher, and cleaner than the vake yeast code. I th sounds like a, this sounds like a challenge. This sounds like you're laying this down. You brew the beer, we pitch both strains, and we see which one ferments faster. We'll see what and happens. further and better. I mean, the taste is also should also be a uh, uh, be a factor. And I'm and, and I would submit that even if even if uh, uh, champagne yeast uh, ferments faster and higher. Um, flavor is gonna is gonna win over when it comes to uh, uh comes to yeast, but but if the base beer is correct in like an IPA, you don't need a ton of flavor from the yeast. And EC eleven eighteen is a very neutral yeast that will give that won't tarnish with any esters that beer. Where vake the esters that come off of it sometimes at that high fermentation may not fully complement depending on the hops used. So I think EC 1118 would beat it. 
All right. So I, it feels like a tune in tune in later, and we may have a, a, a EC11 versus fake uh, uh, yeast uh, uh, small brew uh, uh, homebrew showdown. Um, but well, anyway, that's I still say Voskvake Lalamund would be the go-to for for because the the Voskvake ferments extremely fast and clean at just about any temperature, um, and you could have a beer ready for bottling in forty-eight hours. Um, uh, the the writer postulates about many others, but I say skip it. Voskvake maybe EC eleven eighteen. We will have the final. We will have the final uh, 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 ruling for you on this podcast uh, in in a few. Minutes. <laughs> um, now we come to the final problem, carbonation. He does say that you could just forego this step and drink what you have created without bubbles, but we're not fucking animals. You've got to have a bit of fizz in there. Um, he's. I have had a couple like German beer, or German or Belgian beers that were still. That actually were delicious. I mean, with the right specialty style, you can get away with it. But let's just say beer is better with fizz. Um, let's mm-hmm. try to get some fizz in there. You could bottle mid-fermentation, but getting the timing right on that is tricky. And the result is bottle bombs which could dampen your vacation. Nothing like having to mop the ceiling of your rental on the way out, assuming that you're not in the hospital getting glass shards removed from your eyeball. Um Proper bottle conditioning requires up to two weeks, uh, too long for the time limit. Though I feel with Voss, you could have your beer fermented in a couple of days, bottle with some private sugar, and have lightly carbonated, mostly carbonated body uh, beverage of some sort. Maybe with the EC eleven eighteen. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to. They'll, they'll have to be a. That may also the have second to be a, part of the test. test. Yeah, which can also get a more carbonated version of that. Um, his idea, however, is kind of brilliant. Make a big beer. Dry ice. No, even get a big beer and blend it with club soda or plain sparkling water. This obviously waters your beer down, but it's a quick and easy way to have a drinkable, drinkable session beer in no time flat, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, but he also mentions that one could flash carbonate with a small CO2 canister, which if you're flying, that's a no-go. Um, there are also two-liter <laughs> mini kegs with spunding valves, which if you've got the sous vide cooker in there as well, I mean... You're pushing your space limits, not to mention the patience of Homeland Security. There is no way you're going to try to get a mini keg, a sous vide cooker, several plastic bags, malt, hops, and yeast to an airport, and not get the happy glove. They won't think you're up to something dangerous, but they will be confused, and they will not believe you are not fucking around, so bend over and get ready to find out. Uh, And if you have a scraggly beard, you're going to summer camp in Cuba. Uh... (laughs) Now, why... Why in the ever-loving fuck would you ever want to do this? Well, he does point out it's a great way to experiment with ingredients, especially fruit or some other perishable good that either won't survive its, uh, survive the trip or is illegal to smuggle home in your suitcase. And otherwise, because, okay. uh, uh, you know, there are, and otherwise, why? because why not? Because it's a challenge. Because if you're in his situation, it could be fun to go to the people nice enough to let you crash in this house uh, with a with a glass of some suspiciously fizzy, hazy fluid. Uh, and smile maniacally and saying, I made this in my suitcase. Try it. <laughs> uh, if you're interested, I will, I'm going to post. He he included with this article a couple of recipes, including a hibiscus goza and a dark mild that uh, you can uh, that you that that follow the uh, that uh, that uh, follow the uh, recommendations that you could have. Um, 
that are for one liter batches that you could have uh, brewed and uh, bottled and carbonated within one week. The perfect span for a vacation brew. Nice. <laughs> so there you are. Tyler, you got anything else for us today? Yeah. Um, Vine Pair came out with an article where they spoke to 15 brewers about the most underrated beer styles. So figured hit on a couple of these, kind of run through the list of 15, see if there was anything they missed and uh, see what our favorite is. Uh, Jeremy, what would be your most underrated beer style? You would say, um, Right this second, normally I'd say Saison, but right this second, because I've had a couple of really good ones, I'm going to say Belgian Single. Okay. Uh, Table Beer was on there, as well as Hefeweizen. Table, I mean, Table uh, Beer. British Bitter. Table Beer is ill-defined. You're either talking about a light Saison or a Belgian Single, but. Under 3%. Yeah. Uh, so Hefeweizen, uh, specifically like the Bavarian style. So your Weinstefaner, uh, that real, like true to style German Hef, uh, fantastic that brewers mentioned, uh, British bitter, a brown ale, Rosh beer, uh, which is a smoked beer, uh, American pale ale, which I feel in the sea of IPAs, hazy IPAs, Imperials, triples, quad IPAs, poor little pale ale gets forgot about so often. And it is one of my favorite styles. We had a whole episode dedicated to like OG pale ales. And it's a dying style because it's it's when you brew up any new pale ale anymore is basically a, a, if it's not, if it's not a session IPA, it's just a straight up IPA. It's just like, a slightly, it's like mm-hmm. a 5% IPA. But, uh, unfortunately, there's just uh, no market for that beer anymore. No. Extra special bitter. Uh, like I said, table beer, uh, specifically between 1% and 3% ABV. Amber Ale, Hellas Lager, India Pale Lager, uh, the Bavarian-style wheat, and Baltic Porter. So, I mean, essentially every beer style except for IPA. <laughs> What kind of got me was seeing the Hellas Lager on there. The table beer kind of surprised me because it of the lower alcohol. But then I remembered, oh, brewers want something they can drink while they work. I mean, table beer is, I've seen a lot of breweries try to do a table beer. Um, you're right. It's something that appeals to brewers. Low alcohol, uh, funky, uh, interesting. It's a hard sell for a for a wider audience because you look at it and you go, oh, well, first of all, you have to explain what a table beer is. And they go, oh, well, it's a 2% beer, but it still costs $5. Fuck it. I want the IPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two brewers that specifically said table beer. Um, one, Lee Parker, the barrel program manager for Jester King Brewing, which right in line. Yeah. The next one kind of surprised me. It was, it was Zach Kelly, the brewmaster for Hen House Brewing Company that is known for their hot forward, like hazy IPAs, 
and IPAs in Santa Rosa, California. Yeah, but I mean, just because that's what he's known for doesn't mean he likes to drink them. No, no, but it was not really surprising, but it I got a chuckle out of Fair enough. This hophead brewer being like, Oh yeah, table beer. That is where you need to go. You need something light, pillowy mouthfeel. They complement any meal, dry, effervescent. So uh, out of here, out of that list of styles, so half British bitter, brown ale, Ross beer, American pale ale, Don't ESB, know. table what? beer. I do want to comment on uh, on uh, German Hef, though, because I disagree with that one because for two reasons. I mean, number one, there's only so there's only so many places you can go with a German Hef. The recipe is pretty formulaic. It's 50-50 wheat, Pilsner, German hops, German German uh, wheat yeast. You don't have a lot of playroom in a German Hef. They're wonderful beers, but um, there's there's not a whole lot of places to explore uh, when it comes to a German style Hefeweizen. I mean, you know what you're getting, you know, all you can really, all, the only, the only X factor that you really have in a, in a, in a German Hef is the, the fermentation characteristics um, or the fermentation conditions that produce how, you know, the bubble gum, the banana, the clove, and to what degree. Same could be said for, a traditional Saison or Belgian single, though. I, I disagree and wholly because Saison they... is, like, is almost the opposite of that. It's so widely defined because you can use, you can use uh, uh, unmalted grain, you can use rye, you can use uh, sp- uh, spelt, you can use uh, 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 any sort of stuff. If, if, if it's laying around, you can throw it in a Saison. And never mind that, spices as well. Um, all of which are not. If you threw, if you start heavily spicing a German style uh, Hefeweizen, some you're, you're going to start a world war. That's how that, that's how the that's how both those world wars started. Yeah, but I don't think this question was posed to them in like brewing. It was more posed in if you're drinking. Yeah, fair enough. I just like that's the only thing about uh, the German style. I, I like a German style Hefeweizen. But I also know why you, you you don't find a lot of them. Never mind, there's not much of a market for them. Out, you know, well, there's not much of a market. But if you want one, the Germans do it really well. Go buy one of theirs. Yeah. Go go buy Weisdefoner. Even imported, they sell it pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, so out of that list, Jeremy, which one would you? say is your favorite of saison okay out of the list the article mentions i guess that'd be table beer is the, the closest thing that they that they, they they mentioned well although actually no let me change that um esb really that's probably my least favorite out of that i would say hellas lager with american pale ale being a close second uh, I'm, I'm, I'm finding, a, I'm, I'm becoming interested in like the, uh, in the, uh, original, uh, English pale ales. So yeah, I think a, a ESB uh, right there is one that interests, interests me right this second. Uh, I mean, nothing against okay. it. I, I, I do love me a Hellas and, and we've talked about pale ale before, but the, 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 uh, the, 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 the 
best bidder and extra special bidders, they're they're an interesting class all by themselves. And again, hugely popular for about a second. Can't find them anymore. Or if a place does a beer and, of it, and everyone wants to try a sample and then order the IPA. And and out of that list, there's only two. There's only two on that list that I think there is still a market for. You know, one is ESB. I still have people asking for ESB that will b- buy an ESB. By the way, um, not a lot. I'm not going to replace an entire shelf with ESB anytime soon. But it does have a market. The other one is, is strangely enough, amber ale. I feel like amber, amber ale is getting a resurgence. It's a growing right category. Yep. I was going to say the brewery I work for, we do an amber, and it's moved up to our second best seller. There's um, there's been a resurgence, and I think there's a little bit of there's a little bit of hop fatigue in the population, and an amber ale is a really really nice drinkable. It's got it. It's got some hops to it, but it's got a little malt characteristic. Uh, I would disagree with you on the ESB and say brown ale. Okay, fair enough. Which brown ale, amber ale, brown ale, amber ale? It, they're so close. Yeah, they're okay. There's but there, but you're right. There's another one that still has some market that that has some marketability at the moment. So, and I think there is a market for like Hellas Lager or Baltic Porter, but uh, I mean, the problem with Baltic Porter not big is you have to explain what Baltic Porter is, um, and yep. then by the time you get done, they've already their eyes are already glazed over. You're just like, ah, oh, fuck, Imperial Porter, okay, Imperial Porter, just big Porter, big Porter. Um, you mean stout? Yeah, with fucking Lager stout. East. Fuck. <laughs> don't don't even get to don't yeast is gonna bl- the getting the yeast will blow their mind. Just go fuck big big porter. You mean stout? Yeah, fucking stout. Just it's a fucking stout. Crisp um, stout. <laughs> um, crispy Hellas, boy stout. Hellas, I think uh, a lot of but a lot of breweries do Hellas, um, and so I'm not sure if it is underrated. I think it is it is fairly highly rated and rightly so. I don't think it's I don't find that hell is an is an overlooked category um it, it's one of those on that list that i think it i mean it doesn't get as much love as ipa nobody gets as much love as ipa but it does no. give, get get it does get quite a bit of love out there and rightly deserved it's a very nice style yep anyway we could go we could we could carry this on all <laughs> fucking night but tyler do you have anything else for us tonight that is it for me uh, uh also uh, one final thing I did have was uh, I forgot to give Jeremy the final quote of the shelf turd article. Oh, that, that says, is... in short, collectibles make it possible once again to dream. And what is a shelf turd then? But the death of a dream sold to you. <laughs> And I, when I read that, I was like, that is the most like nihilistic Jeremy quote I could think of right now. So, yes, there you go. I hope that ruins your night. 
This has been with that thought. This has been it's all beer. Uh, if this ruins your night, uh, you can let us know on uh, on uh, uh, we're on uh, uh, Twitter. We put all the articles we use to make this uh, up on there. Uh, I put pictures and other random shit that I find on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at It's All Beer. Um, you can leave us a review on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get this podcast. Uh, let us know, especially how uh, we ruined your night. Um, uh, uh, you can send us an email. It's all beer at gmail.com. Um, and uh, you can complain to Tyler uh, just just how... If you, if, if, if you are a shelf turd... Um, let them let them know how you uh, <laughs> let them know how you don't appreciate being called out like that. Uh, shelf turds lives matter, by the way. Um, <laughs> and you can send your hate mail to it's all beer at gmail.com. And, and after that little tidbit, I'll be quite enough from us. I'm Jeremy Jones. I'm Tyler Zimmerman. I'm gonna have a beer. Have fun.